Let's roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for all things Kings of War. as they delve into the world of Mantica and bring you in-depth coverage of all things Kings of War. Gentle listeners, welcome to Countercharge. I'm Daniel Reed. And I'm Felix Castro. And I'm Mark Zolinski. Welcome to another episode of the Narrative Workshop. And we're going to be talking about our favorite muscle midgets, the dwarves, today. So, first off, why don't we go ahead and catch up with Dan. Dan, what's happening out there in sunny old England? Well, yeah, it's it's wet palette drying up weather at the moment, so I'm wrestling with that. And I'm also painting some uh, Mantic Alohi for my Basilean army, which I'm hoping to get ready for Clash of Kings in September. But if it carries on being sticky painting weather, I'm not sure that's going to happen. I have... Uh, over the past few months, I've had an elf army on the go, which I have had varying levels of success with, um, although I did get it to the standard that I wanted it to, and it won a couple of awards here and there. Uh, but I just haven't got the hang of elves at all. Um, but then I haven't taken a conventional list that most people take. There's lots of defense for, there's infantry and stuff like that, which I guess is because I'm a dwarf player at heart, so I think I'll take elf infantry. But it's defense four, so it gets creamed. So I gave it a good go, but now I'm moving on to the Basileans. Lots of defense five and, you know, fly. I like the, I like the sound of that. Well, let's hope third edition does something about that elf infantry for you and you can get it back off the shelf. So it's way too beautiful to be sitting in a box somewhere. Well, yeah, I mean, the project was uh, Games Workshop miniatures that I'd always wanted to paint and never got round to and, and revived and made them made them look consistent and, and did a consistent basing scheme and stuff like that. So I'd really like them to be usable. And I did use the uh, both formations uh, from the Clash of Kings 2019, the uh, Green Lady regen form- formation and the Cavalry formation. Um, but I found they were of limited use. But there we are. That's just me, perhaps. Well, Steve Hildrew needs to be giving you some tips with the elves over there, so... Well, that's true. He gave me a bit of a pasting with his ratkin. Showed me how to play those. Oh, very cool. So how are those ratkin in person? Oh, well, you know, he's got that big uh, <laughs> big rat demon thing, which is amazing. Um, if you've seen any pictures of that online, uh, that's what most people comment on. Um, yeah, it's a lovely army. It's a lovely army, and he knows exactly how to play it. So, yeah, pick up those battle reports, people. There you go. So did you get a chance to be on a battle report? No, we didn't do one uh, the first time around. I think he likes to break people in gently and uh, and then throw them to the wolves in the second one. So we haven't had a second game yet, but I shall definitely be getting in touch with him uh, once the uh, Basileans are up and running. So have you had a chance to fiddle around with the new contrast paints at all? I have been. I have been. I'm not sure. I'm not sure they're quite the thing for me. I tend to use... I tend to do quite a lot of... Um, base coating, uh, precision washing, and then uh, highlighting over the top. And they're not particularly good for that. I think I think they might have suffered from GW over-marketing somewhat as, as a miracle paint, when in fact they're probably meant for people who aren't necessarily good painters, but who want to get their armies painted, you know, and avoid having the gray plastic on the table. Um, and they, they could well be a quick way, but I think if you want to add any more techniques to them, they then become a bit more laborious. What do you think? 
I agree. I I bought some. I was going to buy the entire line, and I held off on doing that. Uh, so I bought some targeted ones um, just to test them out and see how they're going and stuff like that. You know, to me, they're kind of like like a gel stain or something like that. They're very thin. And from what I was seeing online, they say it's like a tenth of the thickness of a regular layer of paint. So it kind of like stains it. So my big thing is if you're going to be painting and you're a new painter and you're going to be quick about it, you don't want to go back and do touch-ups or anything like that. And there's a lot of touching up you have to do with this unless you're getting darker with the colors. But even if you do that, eh, it's still a little better to touch them up first. So, but, so what I'm doing is, you know, I stopped by my local G-Dub and I picked up some uh, Primaris Marines over there. So I'm painting them up as Blood Angels and I'm trying to take it from the position of a brand new player. How fast can I get them done? And what do they look like? You know, uh, one of the things, too, is I think they, which I think is supposed to be part of the effect, they dry very splotchy, you know, particularly on armor panels and things like that. I would never do a vehicle with these, which kind of defeats the purpose, too. You would think that, you know, doing a vehicle would be essential for doing 40K or something like that. You know, for the organics, for the woods, like on a catapult or something for uh, Kings of War, it should be okay, but... You know, just uh, playing around with those. So I'm just painting them up quick and dirty, just uh, saying, hey, if I was going to be playing a quick game and I just wanted to toss some non-gray miniatures on there, you know, what would I do? They do take a while to dry, too. So, yeah, even batch painting, you want to uh, get them done and then, you know, go put on a pot of tea or something because then come back in a half an hour uh, and then move on to the next thing. So, but uh, yeah, a lot of touching up. They're not the miracle I thought they were going to be with the hype. I was very, very excited that I was going to throw all my other paint out and this is what I was going to use, but uh, that's not the case. So, but uh, not bad. I mean, you know, if you're doing the beginner painter thing, like I said, I'll toss these very crappily painted miniatures up there, but they are going to be my contrast minis just to kind of see. I might even put some decals on the side just for fun. So, you know, up on the shoulder pads and see where we go from there. Well, I think the way that my painting is going, I'm more likely to be switching to something like scale 75 at any time that I can afford that just for the for the transparency and stuff like that. Because the way that the way that I seem to be developing is is doing more glazing and more kind of trying to head towards the high-end techniques that the crystal brush type people use uh, in my own kind of meandering way. So I'm not sure that I'm not sure these are made for me and I'm not sure that necessarily the games workshop way of painting involves those techniques. I think it's definitely more to do with base, you know, flat base colors, these contrast paints. And also they are made for, I think for games workshop miniatures, which have usually have quite heavy ingrained detail, uh, which these, these contrast paints can fall into uh, which will look slightly better than something with with a lot of flat surfaces and perhaps less deep detail but there we are yeah absolutely it is amazing you slap on that you know one thick coat so to speak and you think you put too much on and then it just kind of like sucks in it likes it shrinks or something mm. kind of like you know what i mean it almost reminds me of uh shrink wrap <laughs> you know you hit it with the hair dryer it goes <laughs> So, uh, very interesting. But, you know, I see everybody trying to paint miniatures the standard way that they paint miniatures with this stuff. And I don't think that that's 
where its true calling lies. So I'm also going to have uh, Colin try using his Zombicide figures and see if he can knock out board game pieces a little better too, you know, with them, and see what's going on. So, you know, you are a high-end painter, my friend, and I will never compete with you ever in my life. So I'm trying to em embrace my inner tabletop and uh, <laughs> not feel bad when I paint. So There are definitely ways to get an army done to, re to a really good tabletop standard. And that are quick and efficient, but I'm I'm not necessarily sure contrast paints are the way forward for that. I think I'm going to agree with you. So, all right, very good. Well, we are here to talk about the fabulous dwarves, and uh, you are a dwarf at heart, it seems, Dan. So I could not have picked a better tour guide for today's episode. So, are you ready to get started? I certainly am. Fantastic. So everyone knows dwarves. They are a fantasy archetype. They have long beards, they tend to enjoy mining, and no one tosses one. But the dwarves of Mantica, or should we say Panathor, are slightly different from the normal dwarves, although they share a lot in common uh, within the fluff. Uh, they are a good race of the kings of war world, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be nice to you. They were gifted by the Celestians, who were basically the gods of the Mantic world, with talents for mining and delving and created magnificent underground cities. The Celestians, when they split at the uh, cataclysm of the Fenulian Mirror, basically gave rise to their abyssal kin, who were uh, knocking around at the, the abyss at that time. They have a couple of creation origins. Uh, one is nice, and the one is slightly less nice. The first one is that the goddess of the underworld wept at the lack of children, and her tears formed into a stalactite that became the first dwarf. I quite like that one. The second one is slightly less savoury, and you'll struggle to find it necessarily in any of the extant mantic fluff. Uh, it involves lots of alcohol, a human woodsman, and a short-tempered badger. Um, both of them were lonely, and I'll leave it there. Their fabled distrust of the elves... Uh, comes from the fact that they blamed them for the entire affair with the Fenulian Mirror, which led to basically the, the strife and warfare uh, in Mantica that exists today. Um, but they also, as stalwart allies, stood with them in the war on winter, um, but uh, took a heavy toll from that. And uh, I think that led to even further distrust of the elves. Uh, so far, that's that's pretty standard for your for your fantasy dwarves. Don't like elves slightly earthy origins. The main dwarf civilization is the Imperial Dwarves, which exists in a place called Abakar, and I think, let's pronounce, try and pronounce this correctly, the Abkhazian Mountains. And they did pursue, for quite a long time, a policy of complete isolation from the other races of Mantica. They sustained heavy losses from the Winter's War and resolved not to get involved in the affairs of others. And so far, this is once again similar to dwarves in other fantasy settings. But the dwarves in Mantica are not a dying race. And under their current King Golok, they have started to re-engage with the rest of the world. Their western border is with Basileia. And they have a tense relationship with the Basileans, partly due to the Basileans' uh, religious dictates, uh, which basically tell the Basileans that they're superior to anyone else, and partly due to King Golok's desire to dominate trade being curtailed by the Golden Horn, basically Basileia control trade uh, certainly via the sea uh, to the rest of the world uh, the dwarves are located in the west and any trade with the east has to go through the golden horn and the basilean empire 
to the west, they have conquered lands, uh, thanks to King Golic's influence. And to the south is a land called Ophidia, uh, of which not much is known by most people. However, the dwarves have a heavily fortified southern border. And this southern border also involves large carved magical runes of warding in the mountains. Um, I wonder why. Maybe we'll learn more about that uh, another time. King Golic uh, is quite a character. Um, although he isn't playable in the game as such, um, although he does have a, a steel behemoth uh, named after him. He is the cause of the dwarves' revival of their successful conquests. Uh, they're not a dying race, a thriving and ambitious one, as I've said. Uh, he's led them to much conquest and uh, their renewed interest in the rest of the world. But there are rumours, and I found this in some of the older fluff, that uh, King Golok and his success might be due to his devotion uh, to a dwarven deity that is more commonly worshipped by the Abyssal Dwarves. Um, and I won't even attempt to pronounce the name of, of that particular god, but you can look it up. There's also another civilization of dwarves that used to exist, certainly in the Mantic Fluff, called the Free Dwarves, who were dwarves who had ventured north quite a long time ago to build new colonies and see what was out there. Uh, they travelled across the Great Cataract and settled in the Halpy Mountains, and some of them even went to settle around the Abyss, and these later became the Abyssal Dwarves. These free dwarves, or northern dwarves as they were originally called, uh, suffered extremely heavy losses in the war on winter because obviously they were further north and uh, suffered uh, from the weather and uh, nothing else. And they were also bolstered by dwarves who bridled at the strict reign of King Golic in the south uh, because he's not necessarily a nice guy. Uh, he's a bit of a dictator, and dwarven society in the imperial realms is quite strict. And they would flee north and join the northern dwarves and live happily, one assumes. The archetype, they are quite close to the archetype. They're fond of gold and precious jewels. They're craftsmen of metals, and they forge armor and weapons. They're distrustful of other races, but they're loyal when they your friend. They value consistency and detail in their dealings and are stolid and unyielding. Uh, that's quite close to what most people understand about dwarves. But there are a few ways in which the Mantic dwarves differ. They, they worship Fulgria, the goddess of white fire, who gives them access to fire magic via warsmiths and flame priests. Flame, flame priests are quite a recent addition in the, uh, in the game itself. Uh, they can also harness the power to animate and manipulate rock uh, with the stone priests, who have a great affinity with the earth elementals and can bring them to battle and surge them around and stuff like that. And these magic users are quite different from, I would say, from quite a lot of uh, the way that dwarves are represented in uh, in other fantasy settings. They do have a strong magical base. Uh, another less archetypal element of dwarf society and one that attracts a lot of people to them, including me, which is the berserkers. Some of these go to battle on foot, but more famous are the berserker brock riders, who assail the foe mounted on giant badgers, which is pretty much the entire reason uh, I was attracted to Kings of War in the first place all those years ago. The idea of dwarf cavalry riding on giant badgers is fantastic. Um, some great miniatures still, I think, in my opinion. Current political status of the dwarves. Well, the Edge of the Abyss campaign saw the Free Dwarves exiled to the south from their lands by the Abyssal Dwarves, and they've now had to settle within Golok's kingdom. Uh, there's quite a good little excerpt in the Edge of the Abyss book in which the Free Dwarves are 
starting to find their place in the imperial society and uh, are not used to what they're not allowed to say, shall we just say, and uh, being carted off by Golok's secret police. So increased repression in the short term is perhaps a result for that, but uh, who knows what it might do to the Dwarven Empire in the long term to have all these free dwarves knocking about uh, resisting Golok's rule. This is just a taster of the Mantic Dwarf fluff. There is a lot of it out there, and if we included it all, we'd still be here a few hours later. They are one of Mantic's most developed races in the fluff. They've been there from the very beginning, and uh, possibly most importantly, they are Ronnie Renton's favourite race. And so (laughs) I would imagine they will continue on in the Mantic fluff for a long time to come. With the news of 3rd edition Kings of War being on the way, I would imagine we'll see even more expanded fluff uh, because the rulebook has been rumoured to be uh, larger than ever before. And with Winkersar publishing novels for Mantic, a dwarf novel can't be far away, can it? To give you this information, I have accessed the Kings of War 1st and 2nd edition rulebooks, the Edge of the Abyss campaign book, and importantly, Clash of Kings 2018, which contained the fluff about what happened at the end of the campaign. Uh, If you want to find out more about dwarves, uh, I would urge that you research these. So, what elements attract us to the dwarves? I know, for me, it was the Badger Cavalry, plus the fact that they've got magic. Uh, Coming from Warhammer, this this was exactly what I was looking for, because in Warhammer, the dwarves played in a very specific way, and if you departed from that, you tended to not have a particularly good time. The dwarf army in Kings of War is a much more versatile beast um, and all kinds of things can be done with it. I mean, you can go Brox, Rocks and Glocks, but you can also go and do all kinds of other things as well. Mantic are often slated as being somewhat derivative of GW in their IP, but I think their dwarves are definitely one of the ones that have a more unique Mantic IP. Um, I like the fact they're not just the good guys. I like the fact that they're not a declining race, that they're on the rise and getting in people's business. And also, I love the fact that King Golok appears to be rather a harsh dictator with some dark secrets that perhaps need to be explored in the fluff. There's lots of dysfunction in their society, um, which is great for writing stories about them. Um, and they do have a lot of named characters, although whether all of those will survive into version 3 with uh, with rules, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, what do you like about the dwarves? Hey, Mark, do you like them? They were one of my first armies, so matter of fact, I think they were the first Mantic miniatures I put together, because Colin did the undead, and we were putting our first set together because the very first starter set was undead and dwarfs. So that's what we started off with in first edition. So I had the dwarfs, and of course Colin had to have the undead. So they were my first army. So uh, they're not uh, spectacularly painted or even finished being painted, but they hit the table a lot uh, just because um, when we started first playing Kings of War, you know, we were out, we were camping actually. We took all the models out because we brought our clippers we put them all together and then we pushed the gray plastic around because we didn't have any paint and there wasn't contrast paint back then <laughs> but and they were actually the army i worked on on the very first army in a weekend challenge ah. and they're still unfinished <laughs> <laughs> but what attracted me to them number one they were in the box so uh that was a natural you know they were right there and two they're not the most spectacular miniatures. I get a lot of comments on how bad the Mantic Dwarves look, um, particularly the one crossbowman that has his beard laying up over his arm, kind of in the middle. 
where his you know head's kind of solid in there. But you know, hey, they're they're okay for me. So, but I've got a particular army I'm working on with them. I just got a great idea that the contrast paints, believe it or not, actually are going to play a major role in. So I can't wait to try this out. Uh, that's going to be my next thing after I get done screwing around with the contrast paints to see how they work. I've got an idea for a um, for an Imperial Dwarf army, so which is going to be really cool. So, but uh, yeah, no, I like them. You know, like I said, I played them a lot in first edition. I think I've played them a couple of times, maybe at most in second edition, but mostly it was. One of the armies I played a lot in first edition. So how about you? I mean, you're a dwarf through and through. So, <laughs> well, I like, I do like the aesthetic of the of the Mantic dwarves. The one thing that I would wish that they would do would be to concentrate on things like the berserker element of the dwarves and and the magic uh, users as well. I think there's a tendency to sort of go into the whole dwarf steampunk thing, and I think you know there's a lot there's a lot of IPs that do dwarf steampunk stuff. And you can have that, and that's fine. Uh, but I, I really want to know more about the Berserkers and, you know, their relationships with their badges, let's just face it, and, uh, you know, how they fit in. Because I always saw them as, you know, not part of not part of a technological dwarf society. You know, they live in the forest, surely, and, and sort of hang around and build, live in tents or trees or something. I don't know. I'd really like to know more about those. I've, I'm, I've had my fill of, of dwarfs that create you know, flaming weapons and, and uh, machine guns and stuff like that. I want to know about the berserkers. I want to know about the flame priests. I want to know about the stone priests. I want to know, you know, how uh, do they create the earth elementals? Do they just, are they just friendly with the earth elementals that already exist? Why, why are they allowed to surge them around and make them go where they want them to go? That sort of stuff uh, was brought, brought up on uh, a previous narrative workshop episode the idea of are our earth elementals intelligent do they exist separate from the dwarves and consent to walk around with them or are they created by them all that kind of stuff i think there's i think there's loads of stuff that can be explored in the fluff as regards that element of society um and as for the the general aesthetic i think the aesthetic is great and i think you see that uh it's a very strong kind of thing to do because although the perhaps the original miniatures are not not the best proportioned and not the best certainly to put together the fact that we've got some really cracking uh resin vanguard dwarves which are contiguous with the old designs and yet are very dynamic and you know look very unique um i think uh you're going to see that a lot going forward and maybe in quite a few years time you'll get a whole army renewal and, and redesign perhaps but yeah yeah, I would urge everyone to, um, specifically newcomers to Kings of War, to get involved with dwarves. I think they are very much a newcomers army. They do attract people, even if perhaps the playstyle is one that you need to uh, get used to over a number of uh, battles. Well, the one thing about dwarves are you can probably find the models cheap, and you don't have to worry about doing your best paint job on them. You know, if it's your very first army. You know, I mean, they lend themselves to like being sprayed, you know, with some army painter plate mail and washed and, you know, throw in some flesh and wash that and some black for the gun. You know, I mean, you can do a nice speed paint on them. Uh, you get the uh, Brock Rider Calvary, which is awesome. You get the guns and they're high defense and they hit hard. 
Uh, I mean, they're not fast. I mean, let's put it that way, except for the Brocks. And they're not exactly super speedy, but... I think the passive the passive play style could be quite good for um, for a new player because there is a sort of element when you when you play Kings of War is there's so many options. What what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And a dwarf army kind of says, well, all you do is you, you, you kind of march forward, you make sure no one can get a flank on you, and then you let them hit you. And then you decide what you're going to do sort of thing. Um, that's how I play them anyway. Absolutely. And then the other cool thing that's in the army, too, is the steel behemoth. You can have fun with that. <laughs> so, you know, you can have your big clanking monster go in there flaming everybody. So, you know, there's there's options here. It's not your typical, uh, like you said before, GW type of dwarf army or something like that. That's so. another lovely, lovely feature. The steel behemoths are a lovely model, and they also provide a point of divergence with with perhaps other dwarf IPs where, you know, you can have a big monster. Okay, it's it's in the fluff as a mechanical big monster, but you still get a big monster, you know? And that's what fantasy gaming is all about for me. The other thing I find really fascinating about the Mantic Dwarfs is they're not locked in this life-and-death struggle with the goblins all the time, you know? I mean, yeah, they don't like them, but, you know, I don't get the impression that they've got a huge goblin infestation problem where they're at right now. You know, I mean, they're working, they're playing, they're doing their thing. And, uh, you know, the other interesting thing is I mourn the loss of the Free Dwarves. I think that we got screwed during the Eye of the Abyss campaign. Rob Berman, I personally blame you for this. (laughs) But uh, we won, and yet we lost. I don't understand how that happens. Dan, do you agree with me? I do actually agree with you. It's one of those things where, you know, when you read when you read the uh, what happened, you're kind of like, well, hang on a minute. Is that really what happened? Because the dwarves did pretty well in the edge of the abyss. And you know, you thought that they'd have beat the abyssal dwarves right back and knocked them over the edge of the abyss. But no, apparently not. Absolutely. The exact opposite happened. The free dwarves won, yet had to retreat across Great Cataract. And then they cut our bridge down. Yeah. Not happy. Not happy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think there is there is a good there's good grounds to explore what might happen when the free dwarves have to exist with the imperial dwarves. I just hope that that doesn't then get lost and the free dwarves are just gone. You know, I think the the little story that was in Clash of Kings, uh, the latest Clash of Kings uh, at the after the edge of the abyss, you know, did possibly sow some seeds of into fertile ground of. Um, that there might be unrest to come and that uh, Bannock Kolarm in particular, being a hero of the campaign, uh, perhaps might be a rival to King Golok in terms of popularity. And, you know, you could you could explore that, perhaps. Well, you certainly have to. I mean, the fact is, I was going to ask you this question, Dan, but I wanted to let you go through... You know, the history first, but is King Golic good or bad? <laughs> I mean, the dwarfs are listed as a good army, but uh <laughs> This is this is why I think this this is interesting to explore and, and that little passage that I found about him about him possibly worshipping an abyssal dwarf god is is intriguing, you know. There's lots of possibilities there. Uh corruption at the very highest level of dwarf society. And uh, he, yeah, in all the fluff, he he isn't a nice guy, you know. As far as it seems, he seems to be incredibly prideful and and uh, set on conquest and a very strict society uh, that he dictates. Yeah, pro- very prone for um, exploring dramatic possibilities there. And um, as you say, yes, they are listed as a good race, um, but then alignment doesn't really necessarily very descriptive of 
of most fantasy races, I don't think, except maybe elves. But yeah, I'm, in my opinion, he is on the borderline. He's not evil, um, although he could be perceived as such. But it's in the Basilea territory of, you know, they're supposedly a good race. But on the other hand, you know, they are uh, they have a, a societal structure that um, we wouldn't necessarily want to live on live in today. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. All right, Dan. The way I think about this kingdom here is that there are two different factions inside the dwarf kingdom right now. There's King Gallic and the Free Dwarfs. And I like to think of the Free Dwarfs as the good dwarfs. And King Gallic, I'm going to make him neutral. He's that can't be bad because I've already got bad dwarfs. I don't need that. But neutral, I think that's more where he's at because... You know, he's more of a tyrant and everything else. And if he was good, he'd be working with Basilea or Titer, you know, because they're a good race. And he's not. You know, he's like, nah. You know, I think he's jealous of Basilea and their power and wealth and trade. And I think that he's trying to tamp down dwarf society with his iron fist. And there's a reason the free dwarfs left. They didn't leave just to go have a party and live up next to the abyss. They left tyranny, in my opinion. So that's uh, that's the way I think. And I really hope that they play on that because that's a very unique dwarf story. You know, kind of like adding in the Brock Riders, the Berserkers, like you said, living in the woods. And then it just adds a whole different development. And personally, I'm a fan of the Free Dwarfs. So I want to see them topple Gallic over <laughs> or escape again, so to speak. Well, you have to ask yourself, how bad is the society that you actually decide to move closer to the abyss to get away from it? I point exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would, I would agree. He is. He definitely comes across as neutral. Um, they definitely seem to be good. And I, yeah, I'd like to see. I'd like to see more of the conflict between those two. I'd like to see. Um, yeah, maybe he gets overthrown. Maybe Bannock Colarm becomes the king. I quite like to see him the king. But definitely, definitely a bit of strife in the in the uh, in the dwarf paradise i think right and that's what makes the dwarfs and mantica so much more interesting you know and they're not always goblin hunting and all that stuff as far as i know they don't have a big goblin infestation problem in gallic's kingdom right now so they're more up in the forest somewhere running around so you know which is nice to kind of break them out of that mold you know i mean dwarfs are always going to hate goblins and even if it doesn't specifically say that in the Mantic fluff, you think it because of the archetype. And just in every game known to man, that is the case. You know, it's like cats and dogs or dwarfs and goblins. So, But it's nice to not have that pounded in your face. You know, I mean, they're the dwarfs. And, I, you know, personally in Mantica, I think they hate the Abyssal Dwarfs more than anything else. Well, I think one of the problems that uh, the Games Workshop ran into towards the end of their their IP of Warhammer Fantasy Battle was finding reasons that every race could fight against every race because they all were very lo- very obviously located geographically. They all had a specific enemy that they didn't like and they had to kind of invent reasons why the dwarves would go and fight the Tomb Kings or or the dwarves, why the, why the dwarves didn't like um, the lizard men or something like that. Whereas it's, a, it's more of a blank slate in Mantica. They're not, and as you say, they're not just... They don't just take goblins and orcs and fight them all the time. They they can have relationships with all other races and even be at odds with the good ones and the neutral ones. Exactly. And that's one of the things I brought up in Warhammer Fantasy all the time. How were dwarves and lizardmen going to fight each other? You know, dwarves, dwarves on ships, and then they're going over to Lustria, and then they're going to go cruising through the jungle? I don't think so. <laughs> so... 
especially given the whole they're, they're a declining race. There's not very many of them that, you know, they content to sit at home and and uh, count their rubies. That didn't that didn't kind of gel together. Whereas these dwarves are expansionist. They're they're out for what they can get. They're out. They'd conquer the world, you know, if they if they were allowed to, I think. Well, and the nice thing about Mantica just in general is you can realistically figure out with the number of seafaring races and stuff like that how people would run into each other somewhere. You know what I mean? I, there's just different ways to do it. The dwarfs are probably the toughest one because they are expansionist, but, I mean, they don't explore with their armies very much. You know, like, let's talk about that southern border. Heavily fortified, lots of runes, facing Aphidia. You know, the League of Aphidia. Nobody talks about the League. Is that the reason you think that border is so heavily fortified? Mm. Well, this, this could be something we're going to find out about, um, fingers crossed, um, as as we go forward. Because let's remember that we've calculated there's going to be 26 factions in Kings of War in 3rd edition. Not all in the first rulebook, but possibly as a, an amalgamation of the rulebook and another forthcoming supplement, uh, which is five more than there are at the moment. So could the Ophidians be part of that? Will we discover what their relationship is with the dwarves? I mean, if the dwarves are protecting their southern border from them, they've obviously had some experiences with them. There's some fluff there uh, to be written, I think. And um, I think that'll expand them because they are, they are, and also the fact that the world is not Mantica. The continent is Mantica now, we think. And Panathor is the wider world. There's there's obviously more world to the west and to the east. Um, the dwarves are no longer locked into their little corner. So uh, who knows what we could uh, see developing. Right. Now, that's the one thing I'm worried about with Panathor, and that is that I'm going to run into that Lustria versus the uh, World's Edge Mountains kind of thing, you know. Well, how would these two armies even get near each other but the one thing that we did hear about third edition is that there's going to be 14 armies in the rule book and then i think the other 12 are coming into it in a supplement that should be released in december so i wish they would have released them all at one time but you know that's kind of it because you know there's going to be people who don't have their armies released and they're going to be kind of in you know vapor lock for a couple of months but uh we'll have to see how that goes they're not going to change everything to such an extent that those armies are not going to be compatible with third edition, though. So you'll still be able to play them. They just won't be at their full strength until their their supplement comes out. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, the way I like to think about it, and yes, I'm not the biggest tournament player, but I just like to think of Major League Baseball or soccer. You know, they have seasons, you know. So if the third edition rules come out, you know, they're going to be around a couple of months before the new season starts. And the big thing is, when does that season start? Does it start, you know, in the U.S., our Masters is in February. So to me, the new season starts after the Masters. So I don't know what we're going to do with that here as far as, you know, the Masters goes. You know, are people going to mess around with third edition and then have the Masters, you know, season start? You know, but, you know, there's going to be TOs that are going to want to attract people, so they're going to run the third ed rules, and so... That gets a little sloppy there, but uh, yeah, that's always the interesting thing. And new edition, you know, an annual update, either one, you have that problem. So, but uh, for me, it's just having the armies. So I'd like to have them all, but yeah, 26, yeah, definitely we're getting some more stuff. And you know, the Northern Alliance is one of them. 
And you know Ophidia is going to be two. So what are the other three? Exactly. I think that was just a misprint. And now they're, now they're going to be forced to do another three armies. That's my theory. <laughs> hey, Matt Gilbert's up to the task, right? So we should be pretty good on that one. <laughs> All right. Well, and then, hey, we also have to start lobbying for that dwarf fluff. So, you know, Dan, if you're up to it, I'm going to start pushing for you to... Uh, be the author of the very first dwarf novel for Kings of War, so... <laughs> Cripes. Hey, you're a good writer in addition to a painter. You're so dang talented, Dan. Yeah, but if I write, I can't paint. That's my problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. There's only one of you, and I run into that problem. only so much problem. time. That's right. That's right. I, I can't understand that. We have this uh, thing in our hand that gives us unlimited access to everything in the whole world, except time. It's true. So, absolutely. As you can tell, I've been waxing philosophical on this lately. But anyways, back to the dwarves. Yeah, I think that that rune-fortified uh, line certainly gives you a hint as to how the dwarves feel about Aphidia. So, um, and, the thing, and the little bits of fluff that we've read about Aphidia, you can, you can kind of see it, too, you know. And it also, I think, lends to the fact that Gallic is really insular. You know what I mean? I think he's, like, you know, trying to hold on to his kingdom. Yeah, and the best way to do the best way to repress people at home is to is to cut yourself off from other people, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. The dwarves are certainly a fascinating race in Mantica, and I can't wait to hear all about them in third edition because I'm expecting a lot of expanded fluff. So, a lot of expanded fluff, especially with that big book, etc. And the role playing games coming out, so we're going to be getting lots of dwarf love coming soon. So, very, very good. All right, well, hey, why don't we go ahead and slide into a commercial break. We're going to come back on the other side, and we're going to talk about putting all this dwarf fluff into action on the tabletop. We'll be back to countercharge after this brief message. Join your hosts, Jake and Greg, as they cover the world's most exciting fantasy miniature game, Kings of War. On the world's most exciting fantasy miniatures podcast, Unplugged Radio. Talk background, miniatures, tactics, and more. That's Unplugged Radio. Find us on iTunes or on our website, unpluggedradio.com. Just replace the G's with threes. And keep counter-charging. This is Mark Langworthy. I'm the creative director for Red Scar Publishing, the publisher for the Kings of War role-playing game. You're listening to Countercharge. And welcome back. All right. As I mentioned before, it's time to put all this dwarf knowledge into action on the tabletop fluff style. But before we get to the fluffy fun list to play, let's talk a little bit about tournaments. So... We have Felix and Dan here to talk about their tournament list for our favorite muscle midgets, the dwarfs. So, all right. Now, guys, I think that these are lists that you've used in the past, and, you know, we'll, we'll, I don't know how battle-tested they are, but we'll go from there. So, Felix, why don't you go ahead and start us off? All right. Like we were mentioning, uh, I've this is basically my 2018 list that I've converted to Clash of Kings 19, so... Probably not as battle tested, and then this is pretty good for middle of the 
pack. It's not going to win any GTs, but uh, start off with mine. I, I like to start off with the uh, the Bulwarkers. Uh, love those guys with a big shield addition to, to Clash of Kings 18 and uh, carry on into 19. Uh, give them a hammer measured force. That's a pretty good start to your anvils. Uh, then I go with two ironclad regiments, one of them with Orcish Skull Pole, which is my favorite five-piece item coming out of Clash of Kings 19. Such a perfectly costed item to give you brutal for potentially one or more turns, depending on how you roll. Uh, and then just sitting at the bottom, I add a king with the Wings of Honey Maze that would complete the Wall of Iron formation. So, you know, it really gives you a nice solid center for your opponents to bounce off of and let the rest of your army just punish. Then go with a uh, horde of Earth Elementals with the Healing Brew. Go with two regiments of Berserker Brock Riders, one with Pathfinder, the other one with Brew of Strength. Those are generally uh, what your opponent those are the two units of your army that your opponent's waiting for you to drop, just trying to see, like, okay, how am I going to deal with those crazy badgers with guys on top of them? Um, after that, go with two flame belchers, because I just really like that ability to uh, kind of do some flyer control or worry for individuals in your backfield, and also for cleaning up chaff, potentially. Then got the army standard bearer with the loot of insatiable darkness to give you that... Uh, yeah, that ability to Bane Chant, although Bane Chant 2 will just make you cry every time. Going on the list after that, have the Berserker Lord on Brock with Blade of the Beast Slayer, because I'm pretty certain uh, Easy Army will not let you do any other uh, <laughs> configuration unless you already have a Berserker Lord on Brock with the Blade of the Beast Slayer. Comes bog standard from the factory like that. The uh, Stone Priest with the Bane Chant 2 and Martyr's Prayer, just to help heal either the horde of earth elementals or the or really any of the other defense six you things you've got going on in your army then after that the gallux fury those legendary steel behemoth because that guy definitely if anything allows for fun opportunities like at lady of the lake last year where i got a rear charge and rolled max maximum attacks while so i was rolling 93 attacks with gallic it was it was beautiful so um, that's it. It's a twenty-two fifty list, so it's it's not the, you know, like I said, it's not battle tested per se in Clash of Kings nineteen rule set, but it's done well for me. So I, it's not a whole lot of changes, so I can't imagine it changing too much for two thousand nineteen. So there's my list. Very very cool. All right, Dan, what do you got? This is your Clash of Kings list. I think that uh, you finished very very well with. He did. He did okay. He did okay. Yeah, <laughs> top table last well, game. Triumph. So. <laughs> Yeah, he did, he did we, we I. episode on this. Um, feel free to check out, uh, I think I did it with Rob, uh, episode on my Clash of Kings experience, um, which I would go into things in more detail. There's a, quite a bit of crossover between the list that Felix has just uh, recounted and this one, which kind of tells you the the hardy perennials of the, of the dwarf list tend not to change and be pretty much auto-takes. Shocking. Dwarves yeah. don't change a whole lot. That's- yeah, it's quite characterful. So... I took a horde of ironclad with the helm of confidence. And the reason I gave them the helm of confidence is because they often end up sitting on their own in the backfield on top of an objective. And people will tend to try and breath attack them and shoot them in the late game to try and take them off. Helm of confidence just means they can inspire themselves. Regiment of rangers, uh, just for a little bit of shooting, completely naked. They 
pretty good in combat as well. They're a bit like your chaff unit, I guess. I don't have any other chaff in the army. Um, expensive chaff, but they're very versatile. They can kind of do what you want them to do. Although hitting on four pluses, they do suffer from whiffing half the time. Horde of Earth Elementals. I usually would give them the Healing Brew, I think. The classic two regiments of Brock Riders with Potion of the Caterpillar and Brew of Strength because you want to you want to negate their weaknesses uh, and their weaknesses if they lose their Thunderous Charge and they're hitting on fives, they can be like a wet tissue. Despite the fact that everyone thinks that they're invincible, they're not. And with Defense 4, they're vulnerable to Breath Attack. Three Organ Guns. Yes, that's right. Three Organ Guns. Uh, this is essentially a Clash of Kings 2017 list that I took to Clash of Kings 2018 because I'm very slow at picking up Clash of Kings changes and I tend not to want to. Um, once again, classic dwarf player. Stick with what, stick with what you know. Uh, three organ guns gives you such board control with dwarves that you wouldn't normally have. And people are insanely afraid of them. And if you t- if you manage to target three Iron Belcher organ guns on a unit of, say, Soul Reaver Cavalry, they will be gone. With yeah, some they'll luck. go bye-bye quickly. Um, so they are, they're a thing that you can rely on. You can look at your opponent's army and go, oh, I'm scared of that, but I can kill it with these. Then, uh, obviously, Berserker Lord, Honor Brock, Blade of the Beast Slayer, that's your guy to march up to the big monster, hopefully get the first charge on it, and he will probably outlast them because he's dash 17. So he'll take a lot of wounds, but he may well end up providing the killing blow to the to the dragon or the whatever it happens to be it with the dragon he's outranged so they're probably going to hit him first so you've got to be quite clever with where you put him if they hit him first they'll put quite a lot of wounds on him he'll strike back do a bit of damage but then he'll probably die king with the wings of honey maze fantastic defense six guy fly him and what i did at clash of kings is i just flew him into hordes of cavalry <laughs> did one wound and uh, strip their thunderous charge and if they were in terrain they were coming back and hitting on fours and he doesn't disappear for quite a long time so that's his role a stone priest obviously to go with the elementals i gave him the amulet the fire heart and bane chant so he can surge and bane chant at the same time in one turn which i find is absolutely invaluable uh, a greater earth elemental to provide that little force of elementals and stone priest and a battle driller which is just helpful. It's it's kind of a chaff thing. It's individual chaff, so it's not quite as good as normal chaff, but it can it can run around, it can guard the back lines and do all that kind of stuff. And I just find with this with this army at two thousand points, you've got a lot of stuff to put down and everything kind of does a different job. And so what I found at Clash of Kings that I was surprised by is that people would put armies down in front of me. And I wouldn't necessarily think, oh, I can't deal with that. I had a tool to deal with a lot of it, and I had a lot of redundancy. So anyway, that's that's my 2K Clash of Kings 18 list based on Clash of Kings 17. But I think it would work even now, to be honest. It doesn't have all the new bells and whistles, but, you know, it's dwarves. They'll, they still work. Well, I guess that begs the question, what kind of bells and whistles would you toss in? I mean... Would you put a flame priest in there or a juggernaut or I mean I don't know if you would. I don't no, I don't think so. I think I would I whenever I've tried to modify this list, I have ended up just completely changing it. So I would I would do a start from scratch, you know, and, and go the uh the uh, wall of iron formation route and then add in steel behemoths is what I would do. That was that was what I've been tinkering with. 
the new items they got at Clash of Kings 19, you know, they're, they're pretty good, but it's, again, it's, you know, I, you almost have to find a way for it. I mean, the Flame Pledge is good if you want to have a cheaper source of Martyr's Prayer, but being that it's a legendary spell, now only one can get it. Basically, if you just don't have any Earth Elementals or any need to surge would be something I would see if you, you know, got rid of the Earth Elementals, took out the Stone Priest, and you still needed Martyr's Prayer, you would put in the Flame Priest and give him Martyr's Prayer, but that's yeah. about it. Well, I don't really... Also, you can that means you can get two lots of Bane Chant without paying the points for a, for a Stone Priest either. Cause True, yeah. You can, you can have the loot, and you can have the Flame Priest, and that's quite useful. It also, it opens up the possibility of taking Regiments of Iron Guard, because Iron Guard are Defense 6, but they don't have a lot of crushing. Right. So you can give, you can give one of them the the brew of strength if you want, uh, and then you've got two sources of bane chant. So the enemy comes in, they hit the defense six iron guard. They don't do a lot, and then you can you can hit back on threes and be bane chanted um, more than one unit. So you know, yeah, it opens yeah. up avenue. Yeah, I did that at Origins last year. That was a meta call that I made that actually ended up working out for me because uh, one of our Player, local players, Kara Brown's playing uh, Trident Realm. So I was like, chances are I'm going to be against Ensnare. So I went with Iron Guard instead of Iron Clad. That way I'm hitting on fours versus fives, which is way different in terms of uh, damage output. So yeah, I think she and I ended up tying, I think is how that game ended up going. But yeah, it was, that's a rough matchup when a lot of your army hits on fours. Yeah, definitely. Although they, they struggle to then hit you don't they so yeah it's, right it's hence the tie fight. so <laughs> like just it was really hard for us to kill each other's things yeah the iron 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 guard are very good so all right well i guess uh while we move from the tournaments into fluff time so felix i'm gonna let you start with your 500 point list and i'm gonna do mine because I've got a little, a little story with mine, so... <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, my little story is I, I, how to make a 500-point list quickly. So with my segue, I have two regiments of Iron Guard, giving them the throwing Mastis for both, giving one the Healing Brew, and one to make up for that all-time-honored tradition of Dwarf Slowness. Got to make up for that somehow. Whip of Celerity to give them a 9-inch charge. So maybe maybe they can outpace somebody. Probably not, but, you know, maybe. So there's there's that. Uh, just love the Iron Guard. Defense 6, melee 3, 12 attacks, 15, 17 nerve, which is so good. Then a standard bearer with the loot, because, again, as Dan has mentioned earlier, the inability to have much crushing in the, in that list with the Iron Guard potentially give them some crush 1. Get them to get through some more defensive things, and then a battle driller. Another thing to kind of deal with defense six or higher, giving the brutal and just giving d6 plus six attacks and that crushing one. Plus, it's individual, I could use it as chaff if I really needed to. Um, so, really good, and that rounds out to 500 points. Very cool. See, you made a competitive list, mine is a theme list. That's totally themed. It's a you know, the uh, the, the best troops that the king needed uh, with a standard bear and a battle drill. I mean, that's just, that's, that's totally fluffy. That's, I went to the Dan King School of Fluffy Lists. There you go. <laughs> the Fluffy Duck School of... That's uh... right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, mine is an Imperial 
dwarf list. And we didn't talk about this in the main section, Dan, but I kind of think of the King Gallic faction as the Emperor in Star Wars and the bad guys and the free dwarfs as the rebels. So I am building, in my mind, an imperial dwarf list. So they're going to have white armor and black guns. <laughs> I'm going to paint my steel behemoth gray, and the crew will be in black, if you see where I'm going with this whole thing. so <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So my imperial dwarf list, and we'll talk about these units, what you guys think about them. But, so I'm going to start with two regiments of the Iron Watch rifles, because that's what stormtroopers carry. So I'm going to be having those uh, running out there. So two regiments, and you need the unlocks. And one of the things I always look for is large cav to get unlocks or large infantry. You don't have that really here. So it's, uh, it's tough for unlocks. So I had to actually go with regiments, breaking Mark's usual standard uh, list construction. And then I had to put in the Brock Riders. And the Brock Riders you got to have a little speed, and plus I just love them. So, and what I'm going to do with them is remember, remember those lizards, the uh, stormtroopers rode on Tatooine, and the dubaks. Yeah, dubaks. So I'm gonna I'm gonna paint my Brock's green, and you know, kind of give them that dubak kind of look to them. And then the dwarfs lack any type of support hero whatsoever. It is horrible <laughs> i was i was crying when i was looking at this thing so i picked up the army standard bearer because he was like he was there and i gave him the war bow of kava which of course is going to turn into a rifle that's how he's going to shoot and that's how i'm going to keep all that together i don't know if i'm going to paint him in that silver color that we saw in the new star wars movies or not or just put him in white but uh <laughs> so very cool but i was really dismayed by the lack of dwarf support heroes that you could take. We don't need them. They don't need them? <laughs> I mean, they're all named characters. Or they're all super expensive. So go ahead, Felix. Tell me why. Because we're just that good as dwarf players. We don't really need the support characters. No, I mean, you're right. There is not a lot of ability. They added the Flame Priest to kind of mitigate that somewhat. But, I mean, I, I guess in terms of support, there's just, you know, there's... Yeah, there's a lot of named characters, and then there's some expensive casters. That's pretty much what the doors have. What about the steel juggernaut? Do you think that might qualify? Ah, uh, you could, I've, I've not put him on the table, but I imagine, you know, a blast shooty and punchy defense six thing. That's a pretty good, uh, you know, not it, maybe a slower version of what you and I are able to do with the dwarf king, the wings of the honey maze, just, you mm, know, he's cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, throw him in there, even though he's what's, Speed four still along with the other stuff. I mean, so he's not gonna, but he's more maneuverable. He's got that, you know, he's nimble, large infantry. So yeah, I'd say there's there's some use for him in, in that particular role. But yeah, there's not a lot of support just in general in the in the dwarf list. We we support ourselves. We don't need to, you know. I mean, a unit of steel juggernaut that would be cool. I could use that. I need it for unlocks. That would be that would be ridiculous <laughs> thinking about that. Yikes. Whew. Absolutely. Make it happen, Mantic. Make it happen. Absolutely. You'll sell more of them. It would be awesome. So, all right. And before we move on to the thousand point list, what do you guys think about the Iron Watch rifles? I, I noticed that nobody takes them, so. It's the reload, really, that kills them for me. It's, you know. Uh, especially in a game like Kings of War, which is so predicated on movement, having a unit that pretty much has to sit there and shoot 
you know, it's kind of, which is why you notice Dan goes with the Rangers, and you'll notice yeah. in my thousand point list, I go with Rangers. Um, I mean, on the whole, they're not bad. It's just like I said, you know, if, if you're playing Invade, it's like, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's one of the things that I'd really like to see somehow improved. I couldn't tell you how to do it, but right. one of my pet peeves is is fluffy stuff that you find that you can't take unless you are specifically wanting to be very, very fluffy and you have to hold your breath and, you know, think of England, as it were, because you might get beat and it's, it might be frustrating to play, which is, you know, Iron Watch. I want to take Iron Watch. Um, oh, yeah, that was one of the first units I built but, out of my dwarf list was Iron Watch rifles because yeah. that is so, yeah. like, that's dwarfy, you know. A bunch of progeny guys, and- blackened faces with the gunpowder, just, you know. Yeah. And it's the same with rifles. with stuff like throwing mastiffs. In in practice, I find I, ne- I can never afford to give units throwing mastiffs, but I want to because they are awesome mantic kind of additions. You know, they're, they're a unique thing, and they are they can be quite useful. They're just not as useful as the other stuff you've already given them. Yeah, I do, I do like giving throwing mastiffs and letting them go up against the undead. That's funny because <laughs> they just keep chawing on the bones. So. But yeah, I mean, otherwise, you know, Iron Rush rifles aren't bad. I've experimented with using my first army I'd built. I had a horde of them. I was experimenting working out with just regiments of them to at least have some like fire maneuver. So, for example, one fires while the other one moves up, you know, the next turn, the one that moved up the previous turn fires, the other one moves up. But that's just a lot of you're really having your firepower at that point. So, you know, at least with the Rangers, you're able to move and move and shoot. Thinking about doing the crossbows, but then those would be bowcasters, and I'd have to have a bunch of Wookiees or something, and the Imperials didn't use those. So that's why I didn't go with them. <laughs> Problem with the Dwarven bowcasters, I mean, the Dwarven bows, they still have reload. So it's like, you're really suffering the same issue, and you lose some piercing. So it's just like, ugh. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you'd do to, to, to help them out, because I think if they don't have reload, they then become ridiculously auto-including. Right. Because if you can have piercing two, heading on fives in a horde, you know, why wouldn't you? Use something to make them nimble, I guess. But, you know, if you want to waste that on them, that might be cool. Give them a 36-inch range? Oh, wait a minute, that's ogre shooters. Because that's, that's how the ogres have that, because they get high two. The problem with the dwarves is they're high one, so they really can't see over anything. So they can't really use that, you know... <laughs> Yeah, you know, they'll have the range. So if they had the range and they had the height, then they would just be a different unit entirely. But then that's why, you know, people don't complain about ogre shooters being reload because they can see just about anything on the board from turn one. So just they, just give them a rule that says that that if you deploy them, they have to have a hill in their deployment zone. There you go. That'll that'll be fine. I see no issues yeah. with it. Very, very cool. All right. Well, hey, why don't we move ahead to our 1,000-point list? So how did you uh, expand your 500-point force there, Felix? Mainly just stripping down what I had and adding to it. So the two Iron Guard regiments, stripped them naked, took away their dogs and their items uh, to add a regiment of rangers with the Brew of Keen Inus. Very nice. So you guys hitting on threes for... Ranged, very nice. Berserker Brock Riders Regiment with the Blessing of the Gods, a Army Standard Bearer with the loot. Because that's pretty much how I roll with those guys. Another Battle Driller, and then a Ranger Captain. If anything, for 
points because, like we said, some expensive characters in the lists. And uh, I needed to have somebody to go up with the Rangers because it's Rangers Vanguard and provide inspiring because I did not because that's I've had that before too. My, my Rangers st- Vanguard up and are taken off the board through a lucky spiky nerve roll and some shooting turn one, and it's sad. So. Absolutely. All right. Well, I kind of spoiled my list a little bit because I went ahead and expanded my Iron Watch rifles and added another regiment of those. I kept my Brock Riders from the previous one, kept the Army Standard Bearer, then I added the Steel Behemoth. And yeah, that's probably not fair at 1,000 points, but heck, I needed to get my uh, AT-AT in there. So, you know, that's, uh, had to put that in there for them to uh, go around and crush their enemies. And uh, so that'll be fun. Put that in there. Like I said, I'll paint those guys with the black armor and everything. And I already have the models for this army, so I just haven't had time to put it together. So I've been thinking about it for a long time. I've got a couple of test models, but I was never happy with the white. So I never really pursued it. But now with this contrast white... I've seen some people put together some really nice stormtroopers quickly, and they look pretty decent. Yeah, people are very excited about it for playing, um, what is that, Legion or something like that? They looked pretty good. It's like, wow, you know what? i got to pull this back off the shelf. So I was very happy we were doing this dwarf episode so I could talk about this. So I I put in this uh, steel behemoth, and then I put in a flame priest. And as I mentioned before, there's a huge lack of support characters, And because I couldn't figure out a way for him to shoot, I gave him the boomstick. (laughs) So he could have a gun. (laughs) It's the only reason. So, but, uh, yeah, I had to do it. Had to do it. You know, this is my boomstick. You know, I would probably just keep the flame priest as is and use it like that flamethrower one from uh, Force Awakens. Because they do have a flamethrower stormtrooper. Just keep it that way. I've had an idea of what you should do for the Golux Fury Steel Behemoth. It should be, you, you, you do it like the ATAP, and then you have a guy on top in robes shooting lightning out of his fingers. And that's gone. Go. Yeah. <laughs> 24-inch lightning. Unlimited power. Exactly. That's fantastic. Yeah, but so I'm having fun with that. So that's the way I think of the Imperial Dwarves. Every time I hear Imperial Dwarves, I hear the march. So uh, that's it. And he's pretty tyrannical, too. So It's not a bad inspiration. Yeah, it was funny. I was looking at your list in the in the show notes, and I was kind of like, "What is he doing with this?" But that's actually kind of a neat, neat concept. Very, very cool. So, models. What do you guys usually use for models? Of course, there's Mantic models that you know we use that fill out most of it, and we already mentioned how awesome the new ones are. And then, of course, there's GW models. But is there anything else you guys have used, or are you basically stuck to those two main lines? In the mom miniatures, can't recommend them enough. Especially, especially for the Earth Elementals, my yeah, I got a, my Greater Earth Elemental and my Horde of Elementals. Great big dwarves made out of stone with whopping great hammers look fantastic next to all your other dwarf miniatures, and they don't. There's no stylistic breaks. If you if you get the Mantic Earth Elementals, they don't. In my opinion, they don't quite say dwarf to me very much, but these ones from Mon Miniatures really do. Yeah, Mon Miniatures is out of España. They're out of Spain, so mm. uh, yeah. If you, uh, yeah, they, I mean, they have fantastic other ranges, but I, I'd say their dwarves are probably uh, one of their best ones. Don't they sell shields separately? I can't recall, but yeah, uh, I think there's a shield yeah. I actually used their shields for my, uh, was it them or another one, Shebor, which we can talk about as well, used for uh, my Iron Guard, just to kind of 
they're bigger shields. It kind of justify the defense six and stuff like that. So, but yeah, mom miniatures. Yeah, I can't say enough about their their stuff for the Earth Elementals. Pretty good. What was the uh, Avatars of War? I think is another one. Just came off the top of my head. Uh, I actually use one of their King models for my Dwarf King. So they have a lot of good individual characters. Can't really say too much on units out of Avatars of War, but uh, at least for their individual uh, characters, they've got some really good ones. Avatars of War, their Berserkers are good. They're a bitch to put together, but I mean... I have a box of them, but I've never put them together. You look at them and you go, do I really want to do this? <laughs> well, it's... it's it, it, So, you know, going again away from the fluffy, but on the Terminant Gamer side of me, Berserkers on foot are good, but it's like, why not spend the extra, like, 20 points or whatever and put them on badgers and increase their speed and give them vicious. So it's like, uh, you know, so I want to put this thing together for something that may potentially not see the table because of, you know, reasons. So uh, another one that's, like I said, Shibor, they've got some pretty good uh, dwarf models. I'm trying to think what else Shibor had that were was really good. Their ranges are really nice, but I mean, yes, that, they have really good units. Yeah, they have really good, uh, nice, big, flowy mustaches, which are amazing, and I'm jealous. So yeah, Shibor's got some good ones. Uh, Atlantis Miniatures, they did a Kickstarter two years ago for dwarves, so their stuff may still be around and available. I actually picked one up uh, out of that Kickstarter for a King on Large Beast. It's a fantastic looking model. It's this dude on top of a, I don't know what it is. It's like a mix between a, a hippo and a rhino and a big whore. I don't, I don't, it's just, it's, it's a nondescript mammalian looking animal that he's riding on top with an ax. And it's just a fantastic model. Yeah. Uh, they've got a lot of nice uh, things that could be used for Brock riders. I mean, they've got like, Pig, pig riders and pig riders and stuff like yeah. that. They, they're very good for for female dwarf miniatures as well. Yes, yeah, so if you want to go for an all female dwarf yeah. army, like Atlantis miniatures, I'd say is probably the way to go. Yeah, you might need um, to rebuild your house, but West Wind miniatures—they've got a dwarf wars line where I've seen guys using. Uh, I think it's I think it's pigs, dwarves on pigs, so they can use for Brock riders. I've I've seen that in person before. Uh, a player out of, I think he's out of Pennsylvania. Here in the United States, had his Brock Riders using those miniatures. Pretty cheap as well. They're, they're pretty affordable. Right. So your Atlantis and your Cyborg are, are kind of on the higher end, I'd have said, and, and West Wind yes. is is very affordable for putting putting units together, I think. Right. Now, I did know that Oathmark ended up putting out some dwarves. Has anyone here kind of experimented with them or seen them? or? I've seen them. I haven't actually... Uh, put any together they do they do look nice they they've got a certain kind of um old hammer i would say aesthetic to them they're not terribly big or terribly chunky compared to the companies we have talked about kind of old school look to them and they chain mail and kind of pointy spears and stuff like that i think there's i think there's like dwarf clansmen uh, and then there's also a sort of more armored heavy weapon type but I mean, once again, extremely economical. I mean, you can get a, like a box of twenty for not very much. Yeah, I'm looking at the website right now, and it looks like a box of thirty dwarf infantry for twenty five pound. So yeah, that's thirty. That's basically thirty one U.S. dollars right now. So basically, a dollar a model for for dwarves. That's that's pretty damn good. 
then you got dwarf heavy infantry, which are like scale mail wearing guys, and it's the same price. So yeah, you can build a lot of dwarves. So if you want to go for an infantry heavy list, that's a pretty economical option to to get. In terms of Games Workshop, of course, they've um, they've diversified somewhat in terms of what they do. So unless you've got a lot of the old stuff from back in the day, um, I'm not sure that the new stuff necessarily says dwarves to me. There's the Caradron overlords, but I don't know. I, I, w- I would say don't go for Games Workshop unless you've already got tons of, tons of it, you know. Right. Sadly, I have tons of it, so... <laughs> or I should say, fortunately, I have tons of it, so... Yeah, I imagine a lot of folks that played the old Warhammer would have that, so... I've seen some nice um, stuff with people using the Fire Slayers, I think they're called. They're like right. Slayers of old, but slightly different. So people people do favor those, and they do look pretty good. They've got a nice big sort of magma dragony thing that you could do a steel behemoth and stuff like that. But being, you know, me personally, I would prefer to patronize the smaller companies because the quality out there is, you know, is really getting there. Speaking of other smaller companies, I think this, I think it's Black Chapel Miniatures. I think they're out of Spain as well. They have a dwarf line. Uh, you know, so basically what we're saying is, uh, I, I don't think dwarf players are lacking for options in terms of, uh, miniatures, models, manufacturers, you know, uh, I'd say dwarves are a pretty standard trope of fantasy and fantasy wargaming. So plenty of options out there. All right. Fantastic. Well, hey, why don't we go ahead and slide into a commercial break? We'll come back on the other side. We'll do shout outs and we'll wrap up the show. There's only one Cox in Kings of War. <laughs> Howdy, this is Mark Cox. And this is Jeff Swan. And this is Ryan Smith, and we are the Beer Phase Podcast. We're three TOs from Texas, and we talk about the most important phase in Kings of War, as well as other games we play, the Beer Phase. Hang out with us and get our thoughts on hobby, the best beer available, any gaming tactics and current events in the gaming community, as well as guest interviews from people from all over the world that have the same hobbies we do. So grab a beer and have a laugh with us as we BS about all things wargaming. Check us out on Twitter at the Beer Phase and thebeerphase.podbean.com or on iTunes. The Beer Phase, one word. I'm Ronnie from Mantic Games, and you're listening to Counter Charge. And welcome back. All right, it's time for shout outs. Dan, what do you got for us out there? Well, in terms of tournaments, the um, the UK tournament scene seems to be going from strength to strength at the moment. And there's a lot of stuff coming out down south. The Kings of Hearts guys are always putting a tournament on, so look them up. But uh, very excitingly, there is a new player on the tournament scene in the south of England. Uh, it's uh, the Stain of Blood, which is going to be coming up end of January uh, 2020. Uh, it's run by a chap called uh, Matt, who I know quite well. I actually got him into Kings of War in the first place. Um, he'd been a big fan of Warhammer Fantasy back in 4th edition, and uh, life had got in the way, and he suddenly came back to Kings of War, and uh, I gave him a, a game, and he was addicted from that point onwards. Uh, he's going to be organizing that. Uh, it's in the London area, uh, an area called Carshalton, 
it's an interesting uh, points level. I think it's 1,495 points, uh, which is obviously um, set for a specific reason uh, to try and avoid too much spam uh, going on. So that, that's going to be very interesting. Uh, he's not run a tournament before, um, but he's got tons of terrain and he knows the game backwards. So I would recommend looking that up. It's called Stain of Blood. And uh, interestingly, he, he's put it down as Stain of Blood 1, which indicates he wants to run another one. So we'll see when he's run his first tournament whether he wants to do another one. Uh, but yeah, re- couldn't recommend that highly enough. Felix, what do you got going down there in Dayton? A lot coming up currently, but it's going to uh, slow down, which I'll explain a little bit. But this is before this show will come out, but I will have attended the King Me on the Wall in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. So looking forward to that one. That's the third week in July. Probably going to TNT in the end of August and in the Labor Day weekend going to Sword of Kings in Kentucky. But in terms of upcoming tournaments that folks will be able to go to, I will not be able to attend this one because with my kids' football seasons, I have a daughter doing marching band and my son doing football. It will come to a screeching halt by the end of August. But a tournament that I can talk about that I do encourage players to go to, especially if they're in the Midwest area, is the Dragonfall GT. That's the end of October, uh, October 26th and the 27th. It's in Elmhurst, Illinois. It's, a, again, a 2J GT. It's a 2,200 points. But the neat part about this, it is Dragonfall. So a core portion of the uh, tournament is that every player gets to craft their own unique dragon hero to join the forces. So it's 2,200 points plus a dragon on top of it. So if you go to the, there's a Facebook page for it. It's 2019 Dragonfall GT, or you can just message Mark Taylor, who's the organizer for it. He can give you all the details. Yeah. If it wasn't for just my fall, just being sucked full of activities for the, the little ones to do, I would definitely suggest uh, going to that one. So it sounds like a really fun time, you know, 2200 points plus an additional dragon you get to have. That's just, that sounds just too cool. That sound really cool, and I'm so happy, Felix, that you are joining the ranks of the band dads, because I won't be the only one this year. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've already been uh, I've already been conscripted by my child's band director since I knew him from 2001. So yeah, yeah, you're doomed. But uh, hey, I got the same problem going on. My daughter's in the band, and I I am fortunately coming off the board, but my wife is going on, and now we're planning the Disney trip. So, ugh. It's good for them, but uh, it certainly takes up your time. So, but uh, what can you do? It's all about that parenting thing. All right. Well, of course, I'm going to give a shout-out to EasyArmy.com. Can you spot Blaster on the page? Consider tossing Greg a few pounds if you got him laying around for all his hard work for the community. And, of course, the Army List section of the Narrative Workshop is powered by easyarmy.com and we've talked a lot about tournaments here during shout outs and in the old days we used to let you know about the upcoming tournaments and dates and everything on the show but there are so many now it's hard to keep up with all of them until now if you head over to kowtournaments.com you can check out all of the Kings of War tournament action if you've got an upcoming tournament, please submit it to the list and help grow the community across the globe. This is a fantastic resource, so if you need any information on, like I said, those tournaments, just go in there. There's links. There's all sorts of stuff and timing, and it's a great resource. So check it out, kowtournaments.com. 
And guys, I think that's a wrap for today. I'm so happy you were able to join me and talk all about all this dwarf goodness today. Awesome. All right, Felix, why don't you go ahead and take us out? And remember, keep countercharging. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com. On Twitter at countercharge15. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.